Hi, and welcome to Make It Make Sense with Sareka Thanendra Dharaman, a podcast that aims to demystify the less than transparent publishing industry by talking to authors from historically underrepresented backgrounds. I believe that the more we make sense of how things work on the inside, the less we feel as though we're on the outside. Because learning from other authors, editors and agents that have made sense of their journeys should hopefully inspire many more to embark on their very own. Each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee the things they've made sense of in their careers, as well as anything they'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. Today's guest is Sarah Jafari, a British-Iranian writer whose work has been long-listed for Spread the Word's Life Writing Prize and published in Galdem and The Good Journal. She's a contributor to I Will Not Be Erased and the upcoming romance anthology Who's Loving You. Sarah also runs Token Magazine, which showcases writing and artwork by underrepresented writers and artists. The Mismatch, published in 2021, was her debut novel, but today we speak about her second book, People Change, out in bookstores now. We speak about the second book syndrome and the way to just write through it. Sarah is quite frank and honest about the difference between the debut novel and a writer's second novel, and what that means in practical terms of marketing and publicity, as well as the writing process. We also speak on the importance of discipline over inspiration and get into whether to read reviews or not. I hope you enjoy Sarah's infectious laugh through this episode as well as all the insightful advice she shares with us. Hi Sarah and welcome to Make It Make Sense. Hello, thank you for having me. You are the first author that we've had on that has published their second book or just come out of publishing their second book. We've had debut authors and authors that have um, published multiple books, but I think it's going to be a really interesting episode um, because there's so much around second book syndrome and um, and the whole difference between being a debut and then uh, what it feels like to then go on to your second. So I'm really interested in speaking about that later on. But the first question we always start off with is what did you want to be when you were younger? Yeah, sure. Um, that's an interesting question because I, I was trying, I've been trying to think about what I wanted to be when I was older. <laughs> um, and I think when I was a child, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be, to be honest. I was quite like confused. Um, and I think, you know, my parents really wanted me to be kind of maybe like a doctor or like a lawyer or kind of something like that, basically. <laughs> um, because my mum works for the NHS. She really wanted one of her children to be a doctor. Um, so that was kind of her aspiration for us. But um, yeah, it did not happen. I was not interested. <laughs> I just think I'm a bit too squeamish to be a doctor. Um, so, I, <laughs> so I did. Um, actually, when I was going, when I was at college, I kind of was going to do law at university. Um, and I did do like a, a level. I did like, a, I did one module in law and I think I did like a few lessons in it um but I actually changed it last minute like if you have like a period of time um when you first start college in which you can kind of change what a level you do um, and I did do a few like uh, law lessons but I kind of realized it wasn't for me um so I think I changed it to psychology which I much preferred um but I kind of yeah at, during college is when I kind of realized I kind of wanted to work in publishing um I think mm-hmm. um 
because I always liked books especially when I was like 15 to 18 I was like very much into reading it was like YA <laughs> fantasy was like the thing I was constantly reading um so I knew that I kind of wanted to work with books to some degree and I'd heard about publishing which sounded like kind of the dream job in which mm-hmm. you just kind of edit and read people's books um so that was kind of like yeah from then that was kind of like my goal to work in publishing um, and I had like a if a random house it's random house then it wasn't like penguin random house they had like a website about work experiences and I kind of had saved a picture of a woman's desk um and it was like an editor's desk and it was like a children's editor's desk um and it had like yeah it had like Jacqueline Wilson on like the wall of like opposite the desk and she had like uh-huh. a stack of manuscripts and like as I was like revising for my like English A-levels I'd like look at that picture and be like this is what like I'm, I'm working towards type thing and I still have the picture now and it was quite funny because I ended up working at Penguin Random House Children's Books and we realized like a few months ago that that picture like I worked that person she works there still so like that that picture was her we kind of realized it and I was like that's that is amazing (laughs) yeah quite a full circle moment it was quite cool (laughs) wow I've had a few guests on that have said uh certain things that they've or pictures that they've put up have Mm. then inadvertently been quite similar to Mm. what has happened it's so interesting People Change is your second book. I wondered if you could give us a, a quick summary of what the story's about. Yeah, sure. So People Change um, is a story that follows um, two people, so Sharin and Kian. Um, they're both British Iranian, and it kind of the story starts when they kind of see each other again in Brixton at a house party, and they've not seen each other for 10 years. Yeah, they meet again and develop a relationship. Um, and then you also have kind of flashbacks into their past together 10 years ago in Hull when they were teenagers there's like a secret there you uncover kind of something that they're they're struggling to speak about in the present and as well as that you kind of also have Sharin she works in publishing um which was like her dream job but um she's kind of struggling with microaggressions and her mental health um and the story is basically about her overcoming standing up for herself basically Mm. And as you said, you've also worked in publishing and that kind of thread within the book Mm -hmm. is one of the things that angered me the most when I was reading (laughs) it, the certain uh, elements that you had in there uh, with, um, for instance, the email that Florence sent. I was so visibly, (laughs) it was a visceral reaction. I'm glad it it angered you. (laughs) Was it important for you that to be a thread? Uh, for you in this novel yeah definitely yeah I think it's interesting because when I wrote the book I've written many drafts of it but the first draft she wasn't really working in publishing um but it was kind of I felt this need to kind of I think I wrote one scene in which I kind of showed like some of the microaggressions you might experience and kind of when I wrote one of them I kind of was like I want to write like more (laughs) just to kind of show like what it's like sometimes like I think I did. Yeah, I think. And also with microaggressions, because they're so small, I think it's important like to write it down because what they're so small. If you say it aloud to someone, like some mm-hmm. of the things that happen, they sound so small that you're just kind of like, it's a bit annoying, but like, yeah, like these things kind of happen. Yeah. But when you show like how it happens, like, you know, in a, like throughout a year, how many different things can happen, how it can affect a person mm-hmm. who might already have like mental health issues. It cannot, it can just really like, yeah, affect a person. It's quite important. I wanted to kind of show that, um, the realities of it and how it can kind of yeah snowball into something yeah and I think like you said when it's a microaggression and you're speaking about it to someone or relaying it one part of it it's often easy for people to try and say oh but maybe they didn't mean it that way and I think you touch on that really well Mm. in the novel as well which kind of adds to the anger around it because (laughs) I think that must also happen just as much is that people kind of gaslighting or saying that it wasn't Mm. as harsh as maybe 
um, someone takes it. Um, and I really liked the final kind of, um, I'm trying to think how to say it without giving it away, but the, the <laughs> final kind of collective um, action that was taken mm-hmm. at some point. And I just thought that was so moving and oh. Um, yeah, it was such a great tied finish to that to that end um, because it leaves you a little bit. I mean, not that we need to be hopeful about the industry. Yeah. I think there's lots there's lots wrong with it, but um, it is also people, you know, saying that things are not right and and coming together a little around that. But um, I really loved that part of the narrative, and I'm I'm uh, glad you wrote it out. Yeah, because <laughs> I think when it, it's true, when you read it, it just it irks you because I think sometimes people might also be on the other side of it and carrying out certain things and not realizing how that mm. impacts others. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause also something that I kind of wanted to show in the book as well is that sometimes it's like the well-meaning things yeah. that people do, you know, like the diversity and inclusion initiatives, they might go in it like thinking they you know they're helping, but actually some of the things they do or the people that they kind of make make kind of do the things that they want to do you know like often if I've noticed in publishing it's not you know a specific publisher it's quite like broad that it tends to be like people of color have to kind of be the one that takes on the added work of being basically diversity and inclusion like consultants but they're not they're just assistants right. and they have that added role to do as well as their normal role um and yeah I think it's like people don't realize the people like higher up that that actually is quite yeah it quite impacts people and actually yeah. that's not the right thing to do um, yeah yeah, it's quite taxing on a normal day's workload to have something added on that you're not often being compensated for, I assume, in those Yeah, and, it's, and also we're not like specialists as well. It's like yeah. just because, you know, you might be like, I might be Iranian, but it doesn't mean I know everything about every race and I can exactly. help with everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. Um, <laughs> and I have to say the title People Change is perfect. Did you always oh. have, have that as the original title? No, so it used to be called... I think I had a working title it was called like the people we meet or something mm-hmm. and then my publishers were like it's not quite right and then they kind of had some suggestions then I mm-hmm. kind of came up with people change and I felt quite strongly that it should be people change and yeah. thankfully they quite liked it too so we went with it but I think that's the first because the first book that wasn't the case they picked the title so I was quite happy okay. Okay. <laughs> that it was a title I got to choose yeah, yeah because it, it kind of is a ironic and unironic title Mm -hmm. depending on which characters you kind of associate it to um and the two main main characters Shirin and Kian as you Mm -hmm. said go on a journey and it kind of becomes this um narrative of them finding themselves finding each other and um coming together how how did you how did this book start how did this story start what was at the center of it you said the publishing side of it came later but Mm -hmm. what sparked it off yes I think so I, I began writing it in like 2020, I think, um, and kind of, and I was meant to write something else. So when I got the book deal, uh, it was a two book deal. Um, I had a different book I was meant to write. Like I had like a synopsis for a completely different book. It was like Three Sisters. It was very, very, very different. Mm. When it came to actually writing it, I kind of wrote a chapter of that story and then a chapter of like a love story, like this love story. Um, and I sent it to my publishers and I kind of said I, I prefer the love story one that I've sent across and they kind of agreed and all that really had in that chapter was it was actually the last chapter of people change where I'm not I don't think I'm giving anything away but basically the two characters this Shian and Kian Shirin and Kian <laughs> um, <laughs> got their names wrong um they kind of yeah they're in like a party and there's something unsaid between them that was kind of what the first chapter was meant mm. to be 
And I didn't really know what was unsaid between them. I just knew they'd have something unsaid mm-hmm. between them. And I had just this, I think it just came to me, this kind of image of these two people in like a Southeast London house party type thing. Um, and I, there's just a lot of tension between them. And that's kind of where it started. I kind of wanted to know what the tension was, like what, what's mm-hmm. going on. So that's kind of how it began. Um, but the first draft of it actually didn't focus on their relationship at all in the end. It was just actually Shirin and kind of her mental health was quite explored quite a lot. And Kian was actually, he wasn't even called Kian. He was, I think he was called Liam. <laughs> he wasn't even Iranian. I think he was Japanese. Like a lot has changed. <laughs> and he lived in America and they had long distance relationships. Oh, uh, okay. First draft of it. Um, but I ended up, yeah, my editor kind of wanted more romance in the story. Kind of, I guess, more present romance. So I kind of brought him back to the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think I, I think I just wanted to add a bit of Shirin's life with her job but once I started adding in like the publishing aspect I already had written that she had kind of bad mental health which you do see in the book but I kind of wanted to kind of actually maybe show how a workplace environment can make it worse mm-hmm. um, and how isolating it can be um, experiencing like microaggressions and living in London when your family don't live here like and all these things and I guess also with people change the title you also see like her friends and um, she has friends you know from uni how their relationships are changing and that can also feel quite isolating when things just aren't the same anymore. Mm-hmm. And also kind of friendships back home for in where she lives in, where she grew up in Hull. You see those friendships are quite different as well. Mm. And that could be also quite isolating. So I kind of wanted to share, yeah, loads of different things. <laughs> yeah, I, I find that one of the more interesting parts of the book is that you've placed her in so many different spaces. So mm-hmm. like you said, her friend with her friends in Hull, she goes back to Tehran to mm-hmm. visit her grandmother, mm-hmm. um, her life in London. I mean, it's really interesting because we all have that sense about mm-hmm. us, right? That we're different in all the different spaces, even if we don't mean to be. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the more endearing things about her is that she's still in all these spaces, but never feeling quite comfortable in any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes her question whether, because she, her ideal job when she was younger was that she wanted to be in publishing and it was this big thing to go out, to leave Hull and go into London. The fact that she gets to that point and realizes that she's still not happy in any of those kind of facets of her life. Um, it really pulls into then when you think of she's living in this flat share that seems terrible. (laughs) And as you said, all these themes that she has to deal with, it feels like you really are stepping into a space where someone is struggling. And I think that's hard to convey, especially with an added layer of mental health in there. Mm -hmm. How was that for you to write? And um, was it something that was heavy writing or... I have weirdly it didn't feel that heavy writing <laughs> which I don't know what that says about me but um <laughs> yeah I don't know I think I think at the time to be honest like I think a lot of what I get from books is kind of like when I write a book I kind of think about how I'm feeling I think I did mm. feel a little bit like her like my situation was quite different to hers when I was writing the book but I did feel the sense that like I guess it was especially like 2020 we're all kind of reflecting a bit more with mm. the lockdowns and everything um I was kind of thinking about how like you know technically I'm living like what my dream was which was also to be like an author and to work in publishing but like I still wasn't feeling that kind of satisfied Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what sparked it I was kind of thinking about yeah to write it I kind of use those emotions about kind of when you just kind of feel a bit listless and I think Mm. 
I don't know I think a lot of people I feel listen to other podcasts about it and there is a kind of sense that when you achieve your goals like actually I think the most like the fun part of kind of trying to achieve your goals and dreams is kind of actually the journey I think once you've actually achieved mm. it you kind of think what what's now like what's next mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the reality is often not yeah not the same as kind of how you imagined it would be yeah that yeah. kind of felt like that felt quite um yeah felt okay to write and kind of the things of like her house share where like everything's kind of breaking and she lives with like strangers that felt quite cathartic to write because for the majority of my 20s I lived with like strangers in house shares yeah and I think that's the reality for like a lot of like people in London who don't have family here Mm -hmm. you have to just live with strangers so it was actually just quite I guess more like funny in places just to kind of write the bits that are just like it's just weird living with strangers and just like yeah hearing them but not actually seeing them and just like it just being quite hostile even yeah though it's like you're living with these people so yeah I don't think it felt too heavy to write <laughs> even- I mean it didn't feel heavy in the writing but you just conveyed all of that so mm. well and I mean there's a part when I was reading about the flat chair and I was like why is she staying in this why is she and then <laughs> you think well no she's on such a low salary she doesn't have family around you know yeah. it's not just that easy to find another housemate and then find another place to live but um it is the reality it definitely is they're in their 20s late 20s and that is the reality for um a lot yeah, of people unless yeah unless you get into a couple which I've noticed like if you're in a couple yeah. people get to move out and live on their own yeah if you're on a publishing salary you just have to if you're lucky to have friends to live with that's good but I think yeah, yeah the majority of the time people live with strangers <laughs> yeah yeah um and I think it's interesting what you said about reaching a goal that you've set for yourself and how sometimes that doesn't align with what you thought you would feel when you achieve that goal. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes it maybe has to do with when you're trying to reach that goal, it at some point feels attainable, but then there's a large proportion of it where it feels unattainable. And you think, mm-hmm. I can't imagine that happening. And I think when you get there, it's, you know, no one has a manual on how it's going to feel and if it's going to mm-hmm. be, you know, a hundred percent what you think it is. So I think that that makes sense and it happens mm. um in all instances mm. um can we speak about the I know uh in part of your three things we're going to speak about book two and the writing of it and uh the dreaded book two syndrome mm-hmm. that a lot of authors <laughs> speak about but I wanted to know if we could speak about the differences in publishing between the two so the mm. process or um if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to your publishing deal with book one and then what that means once that's published, how quickly do you get on to book two? Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, so I got my book deal in summer 2019 and then it was going to be published summer 2021. So I had like two years um, to edit with my editor. Um, so really, I had, really, I had one year to edit kind of with the editor and they wanted to have one year lead time Um so that, that is kind of what we did in the end. So, um, yeah, there was one year in which I did about, I think I did about two to three edits um, with my editor. I ended up having three editors um, because I think it's quite common in publishing. <laughs> People do end up leaving. So it just kind mm-hmm. of keep getting kind of passed around. But that was good in the sense that I had loads of different eyes on the book. Mm. Um, and also, I think when you have a long lead time, it's kind of inevitable that someone will leave within that two year period mm-hmm. um, as well. So, yeah, I'd had one year of editing and then I got a US book deal which meant that I did more edits with my US editor as well um so I had about like five editors <laughs> actually wow. on five different eyes on it um and then yeah we had like one year of kind of lead up time I think the proofs were early 
were there mm-hmm. quite early so we kind of got reviews and things like that um so it was a lot kind of I guess slower the process um mm-hmm. but I'd already had the book written so in that sense it felt a bit easier but I guess things are also it feels everything feels a bit slower like even checking through page proofs like they put everything in a pdf and kind of mm-hmm. typeset everything that that I felt like I took a lot more care reading through that and kind of <laughs> <laughs> if there was like a typo like I would freak out and be like oh my god like what else could there be and then I'd get mm-hmm. to read it all again um but for the second book it was quite different I think um well I was me- it was meant to come out last year actually um but I ended up yeah just taking longer to write it than I thought I would or mm-hmm. like I did write a- the book on time but it was just not something I was really happy with um so my editor was like really kind and just kind of paused the pub date and kind of said let's wait until you actually finished it and are happy with it and then we can kind of look at the pub date which was Mm -hmm. kind of a big relief um so I did have more time to write it but I think in terms of like the publishing being different I mean there's less lead time with like the when it was ready I think I had about five or four months we Mm. had proofs ready and things like that so I think you could have less like lead time Mm -hmm. um but the actual process felt a lot smoother like when I read through like the typeset pages I, I kind of I'm a bit more easygoing with it I think that's mm. kind of what you get with experience um which is like a bit of a relief as well mm-hmm. um they're like the key differences I think. <laughs> okay and how did it feel from your debut coming out and then having a readership out there and knowing that there's mm-hmm. another book coming how is there I think you're on social media if I'm correct you're on mm-hmm. Twitter yeah. Yeah, yeah so how was that in terms of speaking to readers did that happen is that something that helps with book two for you yeah so something that I really loved about when the mismatch the first book came out was yeah I did get a lot of readers who came got in touch with me um on like Instagram Twitter like email mm. um and it was so nice because I mean I guess the reason I wrote was because I didn't see like British Iranian or even Iranian um people in books um so to have like it was quite a lot of like British Iranian or Iranian American kind of people emailing or messaging to say they, they kind of felt themselves being seen in the book mm. in a book for the first time or mm. a lot of people said that they felt like they were like copied and pasted into the book so just to hear oh. that really nice wow um, yeah so I really loved I loved that I loved kind of when people get in contact um yeah I really liked that I mean the only thing is kind of I love kind of hearing from them reviews are a different story because I think <laughs> that quite got into my head when I was writing the book was that you know if you see like it's really strange you might get 10 good reviews and you get yeah. one like quite scathing one and that's the one that stays in your mind when you write I'm guessing you didn't go looking for reviews but did they did you come across them or were you looking at it reviews well I did I it's really bad I think I've gone into a bad habit where I look at reviews and uh well to begin with I didn't really when I think everyone does it I know everyone does it because I said okay. to ask my authors and they all did it <laughs> they always you always check because you're just curious like will anyone have ever reviewed it mm. and then you see one <laughs> But annoyingly for me, like the first two reviews that I ever saw were like terrible reviews on like NetGalley. Oh, no. <laughs> so it just kind of really coloured everything. So I don't really check as much. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes you get tagged in reviews as well. So it's kind of like unavoidable when that happens. Which is terrible. Um, like, no one should do that. No one should tag an author in a bad review. No, it's really, it's quite sad. But um, yeah. it doesn't happen too often, thankfully. And when I check, when I look at reviews myself and it's a bad review, I only have myself to blame. Like I can't yeah. blame anyone but myself. <laughs> I remember I remember speaking to Jess George and she mm. always I asked her what you know if she's prepared and she, all she tries to remember is that even the best books out there the classics all of them every single book has bad reviews great reviews but also people that it just doesn't 
you know, it's not their bag. And so um, that's something to remember. You're not going to make everyone um, yeah, fall in so love true. with your book in the same way. And you just have to, I mean, it must be hard. I'm saying you just have to let it go, but like, that would be terrible. <laughs> I would yeah. I remember <laughs> even when I was querying and I got the plainest email that wasn't really a rejection, but just, you know, you write great, <laughs> but it's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It feels so personal, but yeah, like you're yeah. saying, I do end up looking at like my favorite books on Goodreads. And yes. I do look at like the bad reviews just to be like, okay. <laughs> that is a great <laughs> tactic. not just me. Yeah. <laughs> We're all in it together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you spoke about before you had started a story about three sisters. Is that something in your mind to keep writing for another book? Weirdly, no. I feel like oh. it was just not. <laughs> it's gone. It's done and dusted. <laughs> it's be- <laughs> I think it was because when I got the book deal, um, from Century, um, my current publisher, they wanted a synopsis for the second book, like a, mm-hmm. and I only had like a weekend to write this synopsis, uh, so it was quite like because I think they wanted they offered one book, but then another publisher offered a two book deal, so then I wanted a two book deal from them, uh-huh. and then they were like, okay, can you send us a synopsis of the second book? And I was like, I don't have a second no. book, <laughs> so I had to just think of something on the spot. I, I don't think, yeah, I think it was just like I didn't really think too much about it to be honest. <laughs> Um, what is the, I guess, because you were also an editor and worked within the industry, maybe you could help explain, I don't know if there's positives and negatives to both, but what, what made you want a two book deal rather than a one book deal? Yeah, sure. Interestingly, I think I'm, I'm very into listening to writing podcasts at the minute. I think Mm -hmm. it's because I'm working freelance. I like want a bit of company, (laughs) but I was listening to someone, I'll get to why I mentioned that later, but uh, yeah, with two book and one book deal um I kind of wanted a two book deal I guess as a debut author you kind of want I wanted security and I kind of wanted to have the guarantee that I would write at least two books and be Mm -hmm. published twice Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is why I was quite keen for a two book deal um rather than a one book deal but actually I listened to a podcast recently and they were kind of saying something that I thought was quite clever and actually I would probably do this if I was to get another book deal and they were kind of saying it's probably better to get a one book deal because if you do really well with that one book one book your next book deal could be like an even better advance for example or like you know mm-hmm. get better terms and things mm-hmm. like that or if it doesn't do as well the first book it's better not to be tied in into a two book deal with a publisher who might actually have like less enthusiasm for you and then might mm-hmm. publish you badly for your second book and I thought that was so clever when I heard that in a podcast I think it was like the honest author podcast maybe when I heard that, I was like, that's actually very clever. It's not something I thought about. Because when I got my book deal, I was actually working at Mills and Boone, um, which is not really a traditional publisher um, like in the same way. So I actually didn't know that much about publishing and things like that. So I think actually, I go back and I would say, <laughs> maybe like a one book deal is sometimes smarter, actually. Um, but I think it's nice to be published under the same publisher at the same time because you know you can have a cohesive look with the package and kind of Mm -hmm. build a relationship with your editor I think that's all like beneficial but if I'm thinking Mm. like technically I think actually having a one book deal could be better Mm. it's really interesting yeah both sides make sense and I Mm. I think uh, for a lot of authors it must be encouraging and feel safe to know that your second Mm. book is also going to be published as well yeah definitely (laughs) um you so we touched on that you uh, worked in the industry, still work in the industry as a freelance editor. You were an acquiring editor in Penguin. Mm-hmm. 
for children's fiction. And your book obviously touches on the interesting theme of being a minority within the industry. Um, Did your experience or experience of others around you, how much did that inform that that narrative? Yeah, I think it definitely did. I think I've been in the industry for about five or six years now. So I think Mm. I kind of... I feel like I'd kind of collected loads of like anecdotes or things that yes. I've seen or heard um, throughout the years. Mm. I think some of what you see in the book, some of it might be some of like experiences I've had or like adjacent experiences, like not exactly the same mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. but you know, like emails might be quite similar to something or things like that. Mm. <laughs> um, a lot of, some of it is my own experience or I guess a lot of my friends, um, that I started working with in the industry like five or six years ago. We've all, we all work in different publishers now. Mm. And the majority, yeah, majority of my friends I started off with are also people of color. So we often have like stories we might have shared with each other or things that might have happened. Some of it is just like things that other people have said or, mm-hmm. or some of them are like completely made up instances. But I think things that I could definitely see happening in within the publishing industry mm-hmm. as well. Um, So you kind of have in the story, you have like a, a fictional character like Rob Grayson someone mm-hmm. Sharin grew up with who ends up getting a book deal and he's quite horrible mm. um he's a comedian and quite and yeah does says a lot of bad things but I think things like that do happen in publishing like yeah when I kind of wrote it I think I must have like subconsciously remembered things I'd seen like articles yes. I'd seen on the bookseller because then I was like well there's a bookseller article inside the book mm-hmm. and I was kind of looking to see kind of what wording they'd use and there's like like many instances of books being cancelled from like right. celebrities who have said something problematic and then the publisher had kind of pulled their book but they'd already, already been problematic before that so it's like why did they give them the book deal in the first place like the big book deal but like things like that yeah do happen quite a lot um yeah I remember I remember reading that part and thinking, wait, is this, this is something I know has happened, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's very close to yeah. uh, being nonfiction. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to ask was about your decision to move from acquiring editor within a publishing house mm. now to freelance. Can you explain um, a little more about that and how that works for you now as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So previously I worked at Penguin Children's which was where that picture that I mentioned mm-hmm. <laughs> of the colleague sat down with Jacqueline Wilson posters in the background. So I worked there as an editor um, until the end of August. Um, that's when I decided to leave. Um, I really enjoyed working, you know, as an editor. I think I think I decided to kind of more have a break. I don't, I don't think necessarily I won't return to publishing. I mean, if they would mm-hmm. have me back. But um, I kind of think it's just quite intense working full-time at as an editor and also writing mm. um, so I already think working full-time and writing is quite a task but I think it's something that a lot of us do have to do because of like financial reasons but I think actually being an editor and kind of I think it's already a job which feels quite like the workload is so high like I'm glad that people are talking about it more um like you mm. see in the bookseller there are people writing like pieces about it which I'm really glad about um but it is just quite a high intense workload in which like you expect mm. it to like edit in your spare time which obviously it's meant to be the role you're doing but it's mm-hmm. actually the role you end up doing like in your spare time and I just find it quite difficult to kind of juggle that and writing uh, it felt like you would just basically not have any free time to just enjoy yourself um so I kind of just wanted to have a break in which I can kind of manage my own time so I'm still doing basically the same work I was doing before Penguin I mean apart from acquiring books 
I am quite lucky in the sense that I acquired some books at Penguin and before before I left and they're letting me like edit them oh, freelance. Nice. So I still get to work. Yeah. yeah, it's really nice. I get to work with like authors still quite closely, um, which is really fun. I'm also doing work with like other publishers, like independent publishers, mm-hmm. um, as well as doing like submission reading. But I just do all this stuff kind of freelance for other mm-hmm. publishers. It feels like it's quite a, a fun thing to do. I'm still doing the job that I did before, just like yeah. Different people and different, and also I get to control my own hours, exactly. which yeah. I think is quite key. Um, in the sense that, like, I could say I'm going to have a week off to write my book, and I don't have to use my annual leave. Mm-hmm. And that means I can't go on holiday later mm. <laughs> because I've used my annual leave to work on a book. Um, so that is really good, and I think you know I would recommend if people are thinking of doing it, mm. but it's something. It's definitely an avenue to kind of explore, and I think you can make a living off it, which is quite good. And is it that you rely on previous connections? Is it you having to, you know, go out of your way and acquire the the projects mm-hmm. as well? Is there a lot of legwork or do you think it's a bit easier because you came out of a few years of being within the industry? Mm. I think it's a bit of both. Like I think the work I'm doing with Penguin, I don't think that would have come if I hadn't already worked mm. there. Mm. as easily and but I have had like I am working with some publishers I've never worked with before I think it's just like putting yourself out there a bit more mm-hmm. like um sending emails and just saying like I've got this experience I'd love to kind yeah. of work with you and I think it helps like I think I would recommend doing it if you've probably worked at an editor level like I don't necessarily that I'd recommend it if you're kind of more junior I think it could be mm-hmm. a bit difficult but I think mm-hmm. once you get to kind of an editor level and you have like a backlist of books you've worked on and edited mm. it becomes a bit simpler like you have the experience to do it um but I think it is really just putting yourself out there as much as you can and while you're working in publishing also just trying to make as many connections as you can or just being or asking people do do you ever like other publishers or colleagues like do you ever work with like freelance editors Mm. and finding out things like that um but yeah I think it is definitely yeah it felt quite daunting before I actually did it I was kind of wondering would I get any work it just feels like something that could not happen but I think yeah it is definitely achievable one last question before we move on to the three things. Um, I think I read a tweet that you, <laughs> that's always ominous. <laughs> I just start a question. Um, but I think you referenced um, that the second book, yeah, that it really helps to have pre-orders because second novels often receive less buzz or mm. um, less, I guess, conversation around it. Can you tell us what that actually means, you know, in practical ways as well as what that means for you as an author? Yeah, so I, I don't think it's necessarily like what I, I, yeah, I remember tweeting that. I don't think I necessarily, <laughs> I don't think, it, I wasn't thinking with like my publishing hat on or like my editor hat on right. I was more just like I'd noticed recently that uh, yeah like I feel like people's second books tend to get a lot less attention mm-hmm. as well as having the second book syndrome I just feel like they also don't get as much attention I think mm-hmm. I have actually been speaking to friends about this I feel like I've been bagging on about it the past <laughs> few weeks <laughs> it's I think with debuts it's great being a debut because I think there was a lot of buzz around a debut and I guess it's because you're quite new and like the possibilities feel endless. Like you have no track record. So you could be the next Richard Osman or whatever, and you could be like the number one bestseller. So I think a lot of publishers put a lot behind debuts. I mean, I saw it in my job as well. Like we have, I guess, targets for how many debuts we wanted to acquire. Like some publishers be like, we want to focus on acquiring enough debuts. So that is it's quite a focus for publishers because they are like the new next best thing. 
which is great. But I guess if your if your debut isn't like the biggest bestseller, it kind of leaves you in a strange place for your second book where I think, you know, like maybe magazines might be less likely to feature you as like a best read for next year or something. Or like if they've got so many books to read, maybe they do focus on, you know, the biggest books like from, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a massive author that's not Bridget Osmond again, but but someone like him. <laughs> or maybe like Colleen, Colleen Hoover or something. Like if they'll focus on the prolific authors who have their books have been amazing and debuts who are kind of more anything could happen but i feel like if you're kind of more middling middlest it's your second book maybe you get a bit less attention okay let's move on to your three things and we've touched on it lightly but uh the number one thing you'd like to make sense of for writers is book two mm -hmm. syndrome which we hear about from a lot of authors and hear that it's quite tough to write that um be it because of reviews or mm -hmm. going through the process uh what was the difference for you and how did you feel uh, yeah so the difference is quite big between book one and book two I think and I think I've, I have heard people talk about it as well but I'd heard about the book two syndrome and I kind of didn't really take it seriously like I was like <laughs> yeah like sure like writing a book is hard it's always hard yeah <laughs> but I actually thought it'd be easier writing my second book so I was like once yeah. you've done it once you know what you need to do but I don't think yeah that's not the case um so writing the first book I wrote it I'd always wanted to write a book like I had actually written a book when I was like 15 or 16 it was like a YA fantasy romance uh -huh. <laughs> but obviously I don't really count that as my first book yeah well it was but it was also just like yeah it was just fun I wasn't really taking it seriously but for like the mismatch I wrote it during I did the Faber Academy course it was like a six-month course um and I basically wrote the first draft in that six-month mm -hmm. period because I was I was kind of like I'd spent so much money on this course like I have to basically write it which was good motivation because I did write it because I was like no it's so much money um but obviously I, I then took like a year maybe a year and a half to edit it see I get there was so much time I guess what I'm trying to yeah. say like so much yeah. guidance as well like you do a course and everyone's always chatting about how to write a book and then I also when I was editing it I was on the London Writers Award um scheme we spread mm -hmm. the word so that was like a similar concept of nine months in which you have workshops and you can kind of discuss your writing with loads of people I just felt like there was so much support mm -hmm. and I'd also been thinking about this book a lot like obviously all your life you think about your first book mm -hmm. and what you'd include so I think this is so much like time and then like mm -hmm. I was saying to you as well like I got the book deal and then I had another year to edit it so it was just such a long period of just like working on this book yeah Whereas with the second one like I was technically meant to do it like the year after yeah, I was meant to have a year to write it and edit it, I think. It was, meant to, it was quite a short period of time. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I, I had a bit more time, but I still feel like I didn't have that much time to write it. Maybe, like, I still had six months to write it, and then mm -hmm. maybe, like, six or seven months to edit it. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, when you're working full-time, it feels quite crunched. Um, but, yeah, I think I just... With the second one, I guess also it's, like, the idea is quite key as well. Like, with your first one, you have so much time to think of it. Yeah. Like I was saying to you, like I kind of scrapped the first idea that I was meant to do. <laughs> and then all I had was this scene in my head about what would happen with these characters, but no actual story. <laughs> yeah. um, so it did just mean that for the second book, I'm not very, I'm not a very planning person. Like I don't really plan. Mm -hmm. And when I do plan, I don't even like stick to it anyway. So it's kind of a wasted exercise. <laughs> so I ended up writing, I think I was actually three legitimately different versions of this book in which they're just not the same at all okay 
that I'd written in full. So I just kept like going down the wrong path. Um, so I did like I did one draft that I sent to my agent that was just very different. It was all about Shireen and Keon wasn't really in it at all. And it was about her mental health. And it focused on this ex-boyfriend that she had. Like it was just a very different book <laughs> to what you see. And then for the when we had like the second lockdown in November 2020, um, I did Nana Rima with a friend and I was like, oh, okay, I'll write like this book. And then I went, I wrote like 20,000 words in the wrong direction again. <laughs> and I just scrapped it completely. But when um, you say in the wrong direction, are you feeling <laughs> that at the end of 20,000 or did you give it to your agent? What makes you feel was the wrong direction then? Well, I think I, I didn't show it to anyone, I don't think. I think okay. I, it was the wrong direction because it was like, it wasn't focusing on these two characters. I was just mm-hmm. like deviating from the path. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you start to just go down like different avenues and like explore things that just have no relevance. But because I was doing NaNoWriMo, I was like, I have to write this like 1,600 <laughs> words. So I was like, I'll just continue down it because I'm doing my <laughs> word count. <And> then, <laughs> but like, there was no like point to the book by the end. Like characters are doing things they shouldn't do yeah. or wouldn't make sense. Yeah. It was more like in my, my in my self I knew and I knew if yeah. I showed it to someone they'd be like what like what are you what is it <laughs> so yeah but all this is to say I do think it's fine for that to happen for your second book and like I think you have to go down the wrong path to find the right path and like I'd mm-hmm. rather have done that than not have written anything mm-hmm. and have like dreaded writing and thinking about it too much like I think I'd rather waste words in a sense, but get mm-hmm. like warmed up what I'm writing and learn yeah. what I don't need to do rather than, yeah, just thinking about it too much and just like, yeah, dreading writing because it gets too big in your head. Mm. Um, and I know there's loads of advice for the second book that people give. So they always say like, write the second one before the first one comes out, which I would have done. I th- well, no, actually, no, I don't think I would have done that. <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm like, would I have done that? But actually, I think my second book, I mean, I think personally is better written than my first book. And I think that's partly because I've actually read these reviews and people might have said, mm-hmm. like, I use too many, like, adjectives or something. And it does kind of make me think, oh, maybe I do. So then I'm actually, like, going through, I'm like, oh, actually, like, yeah. So it's made me, like, <laughs> it's made me, I think, learn. So yeah. I think basically just ride the wave with your second novel. Like it will be painful. But then I'm writing mm. my third one now and that feels a lot smoother. So I do think it's just the second book. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So the third one you feel is smoother right from the start? You're right into it? Yeah. Yeah, strangely. Like I think I did have like a wrong start where I started writing another 20,000 words. <laughs> I went in the wrong direction I mean, direction this is just again. your process, your first twenty are always going to be the wrong direction and then yeah have to scrap them but I think yeah it feels a lot smooth I don't know if it's because I'm working a bit more like I'm not full-time writing but I'm like Mm. more than I was before so Mm -hmm. it feels like I think if you can write it as quick as possible it feels smoother because it kind of you have a first draft quicker and you can kind of edit it It feels a bit smoother for me anyway um I think it's just like the second I I think the second novel is like the the reason that it's an issue is because you wonder if you can do it again and it is quite a different experience to the first but once you've done like a quick draft and a long draft in your first draft you can kind of for the third book it feels for me like a lot you you got you've got like the grip on it and you know what to do mm, yeah and I think you made a really good point that it often feels bigger in your head than 
you know, if you just get something out and you know it doesn't matter if it's not the right direction, at least you're writing and mm. trying to bring some sort of fluency into what you're doing rather than just having thoughts in your head and letting that become louder than the writing. Yeah, um, definitely. And does it help, did it help for you to have the editor to go to as soon as, you know, you were comfortable or mm. did that make you be a little bit more mindful of how kind of your, that first draft would be? Yeah, I definitely found it helpful going to my editor. Um, I think the one thing to be mindful of, I guess, is that like, like you need to be sure yourself what book you want to write. And I think I often wouldn't be that sure. So I think if I was to do it for my third book, I need to be kind of very crystal clear on what I'm trying to say in the book. Because then your editor can guide you in that direction. But if you're actually not quite sure, I guess they can only guide you with how they would write it. So like... Yeah, I think that was something that my editor was really great. So often she'd ask me, like, what what is the core message? Like, what do you want to say in the book? And like, sometimes I wouldn't know, and I think that would be the main problem is that I don't actually know what I'm trying to say. I'd be like, oh, it's about this, and it's about this, and it's about that. And it's like, well, what are you actually trying to drive <laughs> here? Um, so I found that helpful. Like, even just having prompting questions, I found really helpful with my editor is that I think it was towards the end of the editing process is that she just sat me down and we went through like chapter by like my chapter summary and we went through what needs to change and that was like the most it was very like hand-holding in a sense but I just found it so much clearer to actually because I think often what the issue is with like authors and editors and I know this from the editor side as well is sometimes like there's just a miscommunication about what needs to be done or like how it can be done so actually just having like it be quite clear and going through that meant that like that draft that I did was the draft that like got it over the line and it just felt like quite yeah it's a lot easier to just go through and actually like yeah say what needs to be done mm. yeah it's uh it must be an interesting process as well and I think if you're not someone who plans and plots out the entire novel it must yeah. be so much better to have someone else ask you what are you doing? <laughs> Where are you trying yes. to lead this to? <laughs> because I write that way yeah. and I know that yeah. when I'm describing something to my agent, I think, oh no, I need to be a little bit more clearer about what this is trying to say than this happens and this happens and this happens. Is it really <laughs> to move forward with the book to your editor? It's such a nightmare, isn't it? I wish yeah. we were planners. I wish we yeah, were yeah. Well, I, wish I, knew <laughs> I I tried. Uh, a friend of mine who is a planner sent me the three-act structure and five-act structure, and I tried it. And then just, I don't know, I just, I was like, no, I just want to write. And mm. I feel like, and I'm I'm guessing the same with you, that mm. somehow because you're so aware, I just spoke to Emma Norrie and she's a children's mm. author and she doesn't plot as well. And she says that because we know and we consume so much storytelling and everything that we're viewing and reading that you kind of do have this general arc and idea mm. of where, you know, certain things should happen. And um, I think, yeah, then that's how you're, even without planning, you're writing a perfectly great novel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because that just isn't your process to plan. Um the second thing you wanted to make sense of was uh, that writing a novel is mainly about discipline rather than having motivation or inspiration. Can you tell us <laughs> yes. a bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so I wanted to kind of touch on this because um, I've just noticed since being like a published author, I speak to a lot of people, like I've, I think you might relate to this, is that a lot of like your friends or family might be like, oh, I really want to write, write a book too. Like everyone wants to write a book mm. and they wonder like where you get inspiration from, or, like how you find the motivation. Um, and I kind of have realized that like 
it's not really about motivation or inspiration. It's about being disciplined. Like I think motivation and inspiration, they can't write a book for you. Like you mm -hmm. might have an idea for a book and it might be amazing, but if you're not going to sit down and write it, like whenever you need to, like every day or every weekend, like a book will not come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've kind of realized that like with my first book, I'd wanted to write a book for years and years. And I'd seen like, I'd see people getting their books published. And I thought, oh, when is that going to be me? But like, I wasn't actually writing anything long form. <laughs> like I was writing a lot. <laughs> I was writing short stories because you could write them in like a day. Yeah. And that was like, and I was quite like impatient. I'm quite an impatient person. So the thought of writing like, you know, like a 90,000 word book just felt a bit impossible. Um, So like, I don't know, I think, I guess this is more for like yeah, aspiring authors who just wonder like ask because I feel like the question about motivation or inspiration comes up a lot but like I just kind of I think that just kind of makes it feel like a mythical thing that like only some people have inspiration and some people don't but like I actually just think it's about saying to yourself like being quite I guess treating it like a job and being like I have to write a thousand words today and then if you write a thousand words even every week a thousand words you'll have a novel by a certain period of time or I used to do when I was working full time, 5,000 words on the weekend. And I think I wrote a novel in like five or six months doing that. And it's like just making it kind of manageable and just seeing it as a long-term project that you'll have to put work into, but like it's manageable. You just, it's kind of like everything. I was thinking of a metaphor for this. I was thinking it's like if you were to run a marathon, you wouldn't then just run and do the marathon and think it'll be like, you can do it in one go. You'd have to just start like training yourself. And that's kind of like, yeah same thing with writing a book like writing starting with a word count and just kind of building on the word count and once you get about 50,000 60,000 words in you have like you just feel like you've got like the fire to keep going and I think that's it's because you're so used to it you're used to writing at that point so I think it's just about being disciplined basically and I think the inspiration will come and you look the motivation will come once you start seeing that you've got a good word count and that you actually can do it you just got to kind of like have a discipline yeah first. I think that's such an important point because, I mean, at all turns of a published novel, you are going to have times and points where you're rejected or you come across something that really sets your confidence aside. And I think mm -hmm. discipline is so important in those times because, like you say, a lot of people must be thinking, when is it going to be my turn? Mm. And the only thing that does get you over that is being disciplined enough to write and to, and I also think to read, because at times when I don't feel, you know, as, um, yeah, motivated, but also if I don't have that discipline, then reading is also an act of discipline and to mm -hmm. get you in that zone. I think that's so important because you're right. Most people are looking or thinking about motivation and inspiration as mm -hmm. what gets the book written, mm -hmm. but actually um, it's such an important point that I think uh, authors have to have it almost as much as being, you know, thick skinned and being able to keep going. Um mm. And it can be hard, like, yeah, when you have rejection, it's hard to just say, oh, I'm going to write. I think you can give yourself, like, a day to, like, lick your wounds and just have a break and just keep going. Actually, that ties nicely into the third thing you wanted to make sense <laughs> of, which was that persistence and learning from your mistakes is really everything if you're, A, wanting to get into publishing and or, B, wanting to become a published author. Yeah, so it does actually tie in quite nicely. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is just another thing that it's. I guess it's all about like mentality. <laughs> it's kind of what mm -hmm. I want to make sense of. But yeah, um, like with becoming like working in publishing, like it wasn't an easy road for me at all. Like 
you know, I graduated university, I did English literature. And I had like every like summer of my uni degree, I would do work experience at publishers. So by the time I graduated, I had like four or five work experience placements like under my belt. Um, and I, yeah, I still really, really struggled to get into publishing. Um, I had like, I had counted, I had 20 failed interviews at publishers. Oh, actual um, interviews that you had gone into. Actual interviews. Yeah. So like, I know it's, it was weird. It's like, I think I had like, I could write good applications, but when I was like in mm-hmm. front of them, that just wasn't something that was connecting. Mm-hmm. I just really struggled to get a job as an editorial assistant, but I was also applying for like marketing assistant, like publicity mm-hmm. assistant. I was kind of applying for any of the assistant entry-level roles. Um, and like, I think like if I, I could have given up after like five of them and been like, it's just not for me. But I think I was just so determined that I was like, it should be for me because it, it's literally an entry-level role and I have all the experience. Why can't I? Um, so I think, yeah, like I kind of was learning from like, I think it was a lot of learning is kind of why I realized I wasn't getting maybe the interviews and I ended up getting a job at like a, a legal journal publisher. It's like a sales and marketing person. Um, and it wasn't what I wanted to do, but it was like a entry level um, job. The first like nine to five job I've ever had. Um, so that kind of helped me. And I ended up making my own magazine, um, which is called Turkin Magazine, which kind of features underrepresented um, artists and writers. And I kind of did that when I quit the law legal job. <laughs> the, 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 for that. And I kind of, I was onto this scheme, we spread the word, which was kind of like, it was a great scheme. It's kind of to for three people, two of which also work in publishing now. And we, it was kind of like, it was basically like a training scheme for a year in which they like funded us to like get publishing skills. And it was great. It was great. But during that, I kind of also created my own magazine. And in doing that, I kind of learned a lot more about publishing. Um, and that's kind of, I think, what got me a job as an editorial assistant. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, I guess, having that extra thing yeah. that kind of got me jobs, basically. So I had my own magazine and I was editing already and doing all this stuff. Um, but I do think like, you know, it took me, I think it took me two years to actually get a editorial assistant job from graduating. And I was applying constantly. It was like a real thing. But I, I mean, I ended up obviously getting a job. And once you're in publishing, it's a lot easier to kind of move around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say to any like publishing hopefuls, like I guess persistence is key. And even if you're working a job that's not relevant, you can still do things to kind of help facilitate you getting into publishing mm. um mm. kind of see it as more of a long-term goal and not being dissuade mm-hmm. if you don't get through the interview stage because I mean I think a failed interview like those jobs weren't for me anyway like mm-hmm. I think the jobs that I got feel like they were for me so maybe mm. it's fine that didn't happen yeah and also I think we had an episode with uh Raya Kurian from Orion and she made the point that you know when you're sitting in those 20 interviews there's also mm. hundreds of applicants that are mm. just as capable as you are and there's just yeah. you know there, sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to why you, it has nothing to do with you but mm. there's just so much competition for these jobs and so even more so that persistence is just to keep applying and keep finding roles yeah. that might be of interest yeah yeah there's so many like things they get like 800 900 like yeah. applicants it's, it's massive so having so I guess having something you're doing on the side in addition can always help make you stand out as well like if you have like a bookstagram or something like that just having something that shows I guess especially when you've just graduated there's something that can make you stand out I think is quite good to have if you can um but then I guess also on a similar like vein with like um writing like rejection is you know constant <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> constantly <laughs> <shall it? laughs> but like yes I mean I guess it's I think like my publishing journey wasn't too bad I did have rejection obviously from agents that's like normal I feel like I had a, <laughs> a lot of rite of passage yeah yeah <laughs> and then obviously even when you have an agent you send the publishers like I had mm. three offers but I mean yeah, they must have had a fair few rejections because yeah, agents don't send to just three publishers. So there was obviously yeah. rejections there, and I anticipate for like my third book, I'll probably get rejections again, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah. So I think it's just yeah. I think the thing to always take heart in is that publishing is so subjective, and I know this because I've worked in publishing. That like you know, I'll get a submission in and maybe isn't quite for me, and I'll have to reject it. But I'm conscious that it's good writing. Mm. It's just might already have a book that's being published that we just acquired last week that's very similar mm -hmm. and it, we wouldn't do the book justice to have two very similar books mm. publishing or you know maybe I just don't feel like I'm the right editor for the book and it could be it could be a number of reasons mm. but it doesn't mean the book is bad it just means it's not quite right I mean mm -hmm. there's even one example I think in one of the jobs I worked in where a book was like rejected the year before and didn't get a book deal the person and then the next year it got a huge book deal, the exact same book, just because the market had changed. Mm -hmm. And it got like a huge book deal, whereas before it didn't get one. So it just really mm. shows it's not the writing at all. Mm. It's just like the climate or like things that are going on. And that's why I always kind of, yeah, keep in mind when I get a rejection, that's the that's the reason. And if the agent or publisher doesn't think it's right for them, then you probably wouldn't want to be published by someone who doesn't mm. think it's right for you, them mm. anyway. So um, yeah it's okay basically <laughs> yeah it's no it's true it's it's not a small thing that you want to find an agent and you want to find a publisher that really you know loves the book as much as you want it to be loved because they have to stand by that book and that helps the process right up until the end so um yeah I I believe the same as well that it's probably not the right um the right uh, move at that time then the beauty of being a writer is that I guess anyone one can do it like you don't need anything really fancy like you just need some way to write a piece of paper pen computer like anyone can actually do it and you can do it whilst working full time you can do it taking 10 minutes on your lunch break like that is the best thing about being a writer is that you don't need a qualification you don't need experience anyone can do it so i would really just yeah just remember that you can do it and just take however long you need a week to just write and yeah not not feel like it's beyond your reach because I used to think that when I was younger that it was something that was kind of quite impossible to do but it's actually very possible to do um as long as you kind of put in a little bit of work yeah and I think part of that is also reading stories where we touched on it earlier and we always talk about this in on this podcast but where you see yourself in these stories and that's what also helps people kind of feel like they can also write stories mm. um, that they have uh, mulling around in their head and I think that's what your novels uh, give readers and I think that's uh, such a beautiful thing. Well thank you yeah definitely I'm really like really happy that we're seeing publishing sure more books by different writers mm. and it feels like it's a different time now so I think mm. yeah it's just really great that's one positive about publishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode of Make It Make Sense with Sarika Thanander and Tharaman, I would love if you would rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to help others find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Make It Make Sense.